and the 25th chapter. We've been speaking several weeks on the theme of building upon a good foundation. When we started this teaching, we were working out of Hebrews chapter 6, where Paul was talking about for the time that you ought to be teachers, you need one that teaches you the basic fundamental truths of the Christian faith. And we worked on that, and then we moved on to talk about how that in another place, Paul speaks about how that we're like a building and that we are one day going to be tested by the believer's judgment in Christ, the Bema of Christ. And he speaks about how that some will have wood, hay, and stubble, and yet because of their foundation, they will make it into his kingdom. But others that have spent their time in bringing forth what he calls gold, silver, precious stones, that they will for their effort receive a reward. And so the emphasis then was focused upon building and grace and eternal life and a few other things. And last week as we picked up this theme again, I focused on Matthew 25. And I'd like to touch on that a little bit again. And then I want to continue to talk about some of the things that are hindrances to building, things that are necessary in this building. I don't know that we'll have time to actually get into what I, was, what I would like to emphasize in regard to the fruit of the Spirit. But I believe the Lord wants me to head in this direction for the message this morning. We're talking about building on a foundation. We're talking about our lives. And I, this parable, Matthew 25, it just, I know the Lord was really emphasizing it in my heart again this morning. So I'd like you to read it. We've read it many times before, but this message is to us. You know, we, uh, uh, people will talk about the second coming of Christ, and a lot of times they like to really emphasize different current events that are relating to possible prophecy that's being fulfilled. And I've spoken to many other pastors and stuff, and they'll sometimes, if that's what... The Lord has them ministering upon, you know. They'll emphasize to me, um, we've just got to understand that Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And I believe that he is. And the more corrupt this country that we live in, the more and more it becomes corrupt because of its politics. Just a sign of the times. But like the song we sang today, kings and kingdoms, they'll all pass away. But there's one thing that stays, and that's Jesus. I mean, you think about that. There, I mean, that is so true. There have been nations and kings and leaders and empires. They've come and gone. But Jesus, from the time that he stepped foot on this earth, as far as being born, his name still reigns above all. And one day he's going to come back and rule and reign upon this earth. But the parable that he gives here in Matthew 25 is the parable of the ten virgins. I want to read it again. He says, The kingdom of heaven shall be likened unto ten virgins 
which took their lamp and they went forth to meet the bridegroom. Now, inevitably, when ministers are talking about this, not all, but many immediately want to liken it to the nation of Israel rather than the church. A lot of times they'll say, well, the church is called the bride, not a virgin. But that's not true. When you are interpreting scripture, you don't just go back and forth and pick out what you want and then build a doctrine upon something that you find. You have to take all of the scriptures that pertain to a subject and then pray and ask for the Lord to give you an honest interpretation of what's there. And if it doesn't quite fit your theology, then you've got to change your theology or you've got to somehow find the understanding with it. So when it speaks here about these ten virgins, like I said, many, they immediately like, to, immediately like to say, well, this is Israel, so whatever's here, we know what's here, but whatever he's going to say doesn't apply to us as the church. Because obviously without fully reading it just yet, five are left behind. And that, for example, just doesn't fit in to the theology of a lot of ministries today to whereby all you got to do is slip up your hand and ask Jesus to be the Savior of your life, and it doesn't matter how you're living. When he comes back, you're going to go, go up. I ran into this years ago in the ministry. I said something to Becky this morning about being in the ministry for over 40 years, and yet it's still something I really got to pray about and put a lot of time in before I stand up to speak. It just doesn't come automatic. But I remember many years ago when I was a young minister, I remember I was speaking in one church and I might have been talking about the second coming of Christ and a young man came up to me and he said, now, the, the other church that I go to, they, that minister, that pastor told me that he said, all you got to do is just confess Jesus. That's all that matters. You can have a bottle of beer in one hand, a cigarette in the other you can be this, that, and the other. It doesn't matter how you're living. When you come, Jesus is going to take you up. And I think I had spoken about some things that I'm talking about this morning. And I looked at him and I said, is that what you heard this morning from the, or from tonight from the message? And he said, no. I said, then you got a choice, don't you? Second Corinthians chapter 11, just one quick verse or a couple. Paul here, if virgins are only Israel then we got a problem because we're called virgins. And this isn't the only place. But Paul is talking to the Corinthians. They're Christians. And he says, Would to God that you could bear with me a little in my folly. Indeed, bear with me. For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have promised you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And then he went on and he was talking, he went on to speak about how that he was concerned because, of the, because Satan would be beguiling many away from the truth. But Paul here says to the Corinthians, which are Gentiles, they have nothing to do with Israel. Just like us, we're not Israelites. We're Gentiles that have been brought into his kingdom. But we're, we likewise are virgins. So this speaks to us. I think it speaks to us directly. And as an as a Christian, you got to take an honest evaluation of this in your own heart to see what he means and get convicted about it. 
He says five of these virgins, I'm back in Matthew 25, were wise and five were foolish. You know what that reminds me of? The Sermon on the Mount where he was talking about whosoever hears these sayings of mine. And then he talks about building upon the sand and building upon the rock. And he talks about those that hear his words and do something with it are wise, but those who hear the word and don't do anything with it are foolish. They're like building on the sand. Foundations. You know what I'm talking about? He says, they that were foolish, they took their lamps, but they took no oil with them. And the wise, they took oil in their vessels with their lamps. And the bridegroom tarried, they'd all slumbered and slept. Or while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. I think he's talking about when he returns the second time. And I think he's talking about how that those that are alive when he comes, that are, they are to be prepared and ready as a chaste virgin for Christ. Spoken of by Paul, 2 Corinthians and in other places. All the virgins arose, and they all trimmed their lamps. Now, all of us, every Christian is called upon to be a light to the, in this world is shining. We're to be living epistles. And we're all have, we all have oil. And he speaks here about, or I take it back, he says here, some have oil and some don't. Oil in the Bible is, the, is usually speaking about the Holy Spirit. Well, he says, all those virgins arose, they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said, give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. In other words, they had not given themselves over to the Holy Spirit. They may have, the Holy Spirit had worked in them to do a work of regeneration and a new birth experience, possibly. But they probably here could easily not be filled with the Holy Spirit, or many Pentecostals get filled with the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues, maybe moving the gifts a little bit, but they don't go much farther in that with their life. They don't have the presence of the Holy, Holy Spirit working in their life as they should. So whatever, five have their lights shining and five don't. Five have a shining light. Five don't have a shining light. So the wise said to the foolish who said, our lamp's gone out. It did burn for a little while, but it's gone out. Didn't have a whole lot of oil in there. And the wise said, not so, lest there not be, there not be enough for us. But you go rather to them that buy and sell for yourselves. There's a cost involved. Jesus said, any man that comes after me needs to what? Count the cost that's before he follows me. There's a cost in Christianity. So while they went to buy, while they went to pay the cost, which it takes years to pay that kind of a cost with trials and tests and adversity to give an opportunity to mature and grow. While they went to buy, the bridegroom came and they that were ready went in and the marriage door was shut. They're not, they're not making it. And so afterwards, then the others came, said, Lord, Lord, open them to us. He said unto them, Verily I say unto you, I don't know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. That's pretty, pretty frightening to think about. When Jesus comes back, when he returns to this earth, 
he's going to come back for a people that have their lamps burning, that the presence of the Holy Spirit is operating and working in their life. And you see, this is where we run into people that say, well, Matthew 25, that's not for us, that's for Israel. I just, don't buy that. I just don't buy that. And again, they'll say, well, I don't agree with that because that implies that there's a cost involved and the, there shouldn't be any cost. It's all grace, but that's a manipulation of grace. You'll see that as we go through the message this morning. We, while it is God that is working in us, in us to do and will of his good pleasure, it is something that we still have to pursue after and we still have to yield to. It's God working. He gets all the glory. But at the same time, we still have a responsibility when it comes to grace. And, that, and I think that applies here. And the other thing is, well, yes, but this kind of teaching creates a lot of concern because in 1 Thessalonians, the Bible says that we've been delivered from God's wrath. Well, we have been delivered from the wrath of God. But that doesn't mean that we have been delivered from the hour of tribulation That'll come upon the earth. It doesn't mean that. Look over to Revelation chapter 2 for a moment. And just stop and think for one minute. Historically speaking, when the children of Israel were in Goshen, and God's wrath came forth in the nation of Egypt to judge it, were they not protected and kept from the brunt of the judgments that were going forth through uh, Egypt? Yes. I mean, they were still involved in it. There was still involvement there because when the, the death angel went forth, they had to put the blood over their doorpost to be delivered and free from it. So it wasn't like there was zero effect from it. And I'm not teaching on end time events and revelation this morning. We've done that before. But I find in Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 12, and other places that when he speaks here, about the hour of judgment and tribulation that's to come, it is promised to overcomers. In Revelation chapter 3, for example, in, the, in the, this chapter, chapter 2 and 3, John here is, is being used to, to speak to, it's Jesus speaking, the, the angel is speaking to the churches of Asia. These are literal churches that were during that time. And they were being spoken to, and basically he was talking about the condition of their assembly, the condition of their church. And he would say unto them, he would commend them for things in which they were growing and maturing, and in other areas they weren't. He would admonish them and rebuke them, and he would tell them to repent, and if they did and overcame, then they would be blessed in some way. We've taught on it before. But in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10, he's talking to the church Verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. And then he goes on and he speaks to them. He knows their works and blah, blah, blah. But he makes a statement here. He says, verse 10, Because thou hast kept the word of my endurance, I will keep thee from the hour of temptation or tribulation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. He gives them a promise that because they've overcome, He'll keep them from that hour of tribulation. To me, it doesn't make it's very similar to that of Matthew 25. When the Lord returns, he's going to be looking for a people that don't have a cafeteria Christianity. You say, what's a cafeteria Christianity? I had to bring that up. 
this morning one of, I read in the, on the internet, I think it was real quick, to whereby a higher up in the Roman Catholic Church was making comment about Hillary's running mate for vice president and said he was a cafeteria Catholic. And what he was talking about, he was he says he's not a real Catholic because he's so liberal. I mean, they're they're pro-abortion and all kinds of other things. So he's a politician over here with his beliefs on one side, pro-gay marriage and pro, you know, LGBT and um, pro-abortion and all that other. But on the other side, he's a Catholic. And so he says, as a Catholic, I'm against abortion, but as a politician, I'm all for it. So this higher up in the Catholic Church says he's a cafeteria Catholic. In other words, he picks and chooses what he wants. <laughs> and that's the way a lot of Christians are. They pick and choose at what they want. They pick and choose at what they believe. <laughs> but that's just not the case. When Jesus returns, he's coming back for a people that are, have been prepared and ready and I'll just give you one scripture verse that points in that direction in James chapter 5. It's not my main theme, but in a way it is because we are, when Jesus gave talents and anointings and abilities to his people, he basically said, occupy till I come. Work with that till I come. I'm giving you a responsibility. We have been given a responsibility by the Lord when we got saved. There's no argument or question about it. That's the bottom line. And if we're responsible, we'll be blessed. If we're not, if we're lazy, if we're indifferent, if we just want to live in the flesh and not try to walk in the spirit, we're going to find that some are going to be rudely awakened to the fact that they have talked about being a Christian, but they haven't walked the walk to be a Christian. In James 5, for example, just a few places, James 5, he talks about the coming of the Lord. Verse 7, he says, Be patient, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman is waiting for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he receives the early and the latter rain. Be then patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draws nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren. Why? I mean, if, if we don't have to be meeting any conditions when Jesus comes, we can get upset with somebody. We can hold resentment in our heart. We can be bitter toward people. But it doesn't matter. When he comes, it's, we're gone. I can live any way I want. Nice message. Just doesn't fit the Bible. You know what I mean? Be patient. Establish your heart. For the coming of the Lord draws nigh. Behold, the judge stands before the Lord. And, and the judge, did I read that right? Behold, the judge stands before the door, not the Lord. So the point is, and I'll give you one more. Look over to Luke 17.5. I've got these scriptures on the board. You can see them. We have been told here in Luke's account, Matthew's account, that... Well, listen to what is here, Luke 17, verse 5. These are those times where he was speaking about his return, even though they didn't quite understand it. Verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And he said, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you might say unto this sycamine tree, be plucked up by the root and be planted into the sea and it'll obey you. But which of you having a servant 
plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by when we come from the field, go and sit down to meat, and will not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I may sup and gird thyself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken, and afterwards thou shalt eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all these things, done everything that he has called upon us to do, he says we're still unprofitable servants. Well, maybe, oh, look, did I get the right? Okay, let's jump ahead. I don't want to go too far here. But he's talking about the coming of the Lord. Verse, um, let's start with verse 26. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. And in the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven, destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he which is upon the housetop and all of his stuff in the house, let him not come down and take it away. And he that is in the field, let, let him likewise not return back. We shouldn't have affection on anything. God's blessed us with nice things. I've got nice, a nice truck. got a nice home. He just blessed us here about a month ago with a real nice camper, travel trailer. Been, we've been blessed with, with many, many things. That's a part of our inheritance. That's what he, he says, if you serve me, you'll be blessed. But boy, I don't want to put any affection upon any of it. Because the most important thing is to love thy Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Sometimes he allows us to be tested in that area. Third, verse 32, he says, remember Lot's wife? Life, Lot's wife, she had lots of friends. She had the good life. They're headed for the mountains. They're headed for, you know, the wilderness. She looked back like, man, I want to go back. I don't want to go in this direction. Turned into a pillar of salt. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it. Whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. If that doesn't talk about the crucified life and yielding to the Holy Spirit to whereby his fruit can come forth in our life, I don't know what does. He says, yes, you'll get a, a good life and a blessed life. I want to give you health. I want to give you prosperity. I want to bless you, but I don't want that to come between you and I. The most important thing in your life is me, Jesus is saying, and my will and my word. I don't want you to be a cafeteria Christian. I tell you in the night, he says, I tell you in the night, there shall be two in one bed. The one shall be taken and the other one left. Two will be grinding together. One shall be taking, the other shall be left. Isn't this the same thing as the parable of virgins? 50% aren't going to make it? I'm not laying it out as an exact percentage, but he's trying to say to us, wake up. That's what Paul was saying in, in the book of Corinthians. He said, I'm concerned that Satan is, not, is going to be able to deceive you into thinking certain, certain things that you get caught up into and do are making you prepared and ready when in reality you're not. He could come at any time. 
People are concerned about this election that's coming. They're afraid the country's going to go backward. What if that's God in God's eternal plan? I don't want that. I don't want it. I don't want any more promotion of homosexuality and so forth. I don't want any more of that. You know that. I mean, it ought to be appalling. I was sitting in the kitchen with my wife this morning, and she had on, uh, what is his name? I want to say Alexander, Alexander Baig, but it's... Alistair, Alistair Baig. Alistair Baig. And he was saying something about, I believe it was the New York Times or one of the major newspapers, and they had a picture right on the front page of probably the social page or whatever, and it was a, a, a gay couple that had just adopted a little baby. And the comment was, isn't this a beautiful thing? And he said, as a Christian, it ought to be appalling to you. It ought to grieve you. It, it just ought to make you want to turn your stomach. Is that the way that this nation has gone? That people fled from persecution to establish a country where they can have religious freedom to worship God in spirit and truth? Is that the way we've gone? And many, many other, many, many other areas. So unless we turn away from a lot of the things, you know, Hillary talked the other day, I heard her. She talked the other day about being in, in favor of late-term abortion. So we're going to have what now? An eight-month baby in the womb of a mother that we can suck the brains out of that baby and allow it to die because, and of course she puts it with, because they were concerned about the health and well-being of the mother. I got news for you. Uh, the abortions today are not many times because of the health and well-being of the mother. In the first place, you could give a mother at that condition a C-section, take that baby out, bring it, take it somewhere, and adopt it out, and still not have an, uh, the, an adverse effect that an abortion would have on the mother. That's all, all an attitude saying that we want people to have the power of God to choose who lives and who dies. Now, if that doesn't sound like Nazi Germany, wake up. This country has turned a wrong way, and I'm all in favor of it turning back. But if it doesn't turn back, and that's in God's eternal plans and purposes to bring on judgment to this country, we're not going to change that. Well, the Bible says we should stand in the gap and we should pray and intercede and we should pray for more time like, like Reese Hall did and others during, uh, the, in, during England, during World War II. I'm not saying we shouldn't strive to be watchmen, but God has an eternal plan that is going to bring home his son. And we better be ready if we're that group that when he comes, we better be ready because here he says, People are going to be right beside one another. One goes and the other does not. I tell you, there'll be two in one bed. One will be taken, one is not. Two grinding at the mill, one taken, then the other not. Two in the field, one taken, the other not. So what is it that will prepare us in our hearts for the coming of the Lord? Well, in Matthew 25, if, if we were to go back there, and I won't, but go, if, if we were to go back there, he talks about the parable of the talents and responsibility with what we have been given to do something with it. So what we have been given is the Holy Spirit. 
And he wants us to build on this foundation by the workings of the Holy Spirit. Well, look at Colossians 1.10. This is what I, I sincerely believe in my heart. God's not overbearing and difficult and hard to please. He hasn't been that way for me for many years. And he wasn't before. He just, he just is very merciful and kind and gracious. You all know that. All he wants us to do is be found occupying and striving to be maturing and growing and serious-minded about his word when he comes. That's what he wants. He, he rebukes the lazy servant. But those that are striving to be like him, I believe they'll be a part of the five wise virgins that will go before him. Sinlessly perfect? No, it's not going to happen. But he expects us to be overcoming and maturing in all things. So how do we do that? We do that by striving to be fruitful. Colossians 1.10 Paul's here in verse 90 says, For this cause we, since the day we heard of it, and he's talking about the Colossians and what a blessing they are and so forth, we don't cease to pray for we cease we do not cease to pray for you and desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will. Not just receive some of it, but be filled with it. Grow and mature. In all wisdom spiritual understanding that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God so for if we want to please the Lord what Paul's saying is that he's praying that we would be fruitful if we're fruitful we're going to be pleasing unto the Lord so how do we how are we to be fruitful well we're right here in Colossians 3 we're fruitful by simply learning to put on or take off and put on. There's some things in our life that we need to get rid of. And there's some things in our life that we need to yield to and bring on. It's the put-ons and the put-offs. In Colossians 3, he says, verse 1, If you then be risen with Christ, speaking about our adoption and our place in Christ, Legally, he says, if we have been buried with Christ in baptism and now we've come out of that watery grave and we've announced to the world, I am a Christian, I'm born again, I'm a new creation. And now from here on out, this life that I'm going to live, it's going to be a life pattern after that of Christ. Just like he was raised from the dead, I've been raised from this watery grave to do that. So he says, if this has occurred, you've gotten baptized and you've got it purposed in your heart to be like Christ, then seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. He didn't say anything different than what he said, what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when he was talking about the Lord's Prayer, where everybody prays it all the time. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, who's supposed to do it? I want his will to be done on earth too, like it is in heaven. But you know how it's going to get done if we do it as a Christian. Amen. I mean, isn't God's will to love one another? The, the, uh, the world isn't going to love us with a Christian love or, or put it forth. They're not going to bring forth the fruits of the Spirit. We're to do that. That's not, we shouldn't just say those as words. 
We, we, he's calling us to bring forth his will on the earth. Set your affection on things above, not things down here. Don't put your affection on your job and your material possessions and all of the fame and all of the positions and all the things that the world has to offer. That's what politicians do. That's what this Catholic hierarchy man, I don't know if he's a priest or whatever, that's what he was saying. He's more interested in the popularity of the world than he is in what God has to say. So he called him a cafeteria Christian. Set your affection on things above, not on things of this earth. You're dead. That goes back to that baptism, remember? Amen. You're dead. And your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we appear with him in glory. My goodness, everything I said this morning just keeps popping out of scripture. Why can't people see that? I mean, I've heard Christians that just have an attitude that they don't think that we have any responsibility to live God's word. And I just don't understand it. But anyways, he's going to tell us here how to do this. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Mortify, he's saying, keep in the grave that old way of life that you um, had before you came to Christ. And he describes it. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection. He's talking about sexual sins. Evil concupiscence, covetousness, you know, being greedy, being money hungry, getting caught up in sexual sins and so forth. Evil concupiscence, uh, uh, just evil desires. For that, for which sake the wrath of God will come on the children of disobedience. If we live in the flesh, the wrath of God will come upon the disobedient child. Hello, Matthew 25 again. Can you see it? So he goes on. In the which also you walked some time when you lived in them. In other words, we lived that way before we got born again. And we got, when we got born again, we demonstrated the world, the, the change that happened. We got baptized. So he goes on. He's still with it. But now put off all these things. He just simply says, knock it off. Just like what David said when he was tempted to get discouraged and depressed and down. And instead of focusing upon Saul and all of his enemies chasing him, he rebuked himself. What did he say? He said, Saul, bless the Lord. Didn't he? It's a choice you got to make. There are no excuses. You, got, you can control yourself. You can control your life. If you're a Christian, the power, the resurrection power of Jesus lives in you. And you can live a new kind of life. If you can't, you need to get born again. If you can't, you need to get born again. Because when you get born again, all of a sudden there's just a, a desire and a, and, a, and a knowing and a want to overcome the old way of life. He says... Put off all these things. Anger, wrath, malice, 
blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Knock it off. That's what he said. You don't have to get angry. I don't care if you were cut off in traffic. I don't care if that, how that person's driving in front of you now. We could all share stories of road rage. The two that shared today, I'm tempted to go out after the message and pull the driver's license. I don't know if it's safe with them out there. Well, Mom knew what I was talking about. I wasn't talking about that bus driver. Anyways, all right, all right. I'm picking on my wife and daughter. He says, put off all these things, lie not one to another, seeing that you've put off the old man his deeds. You don't have to lie. Hello. People, Christians still lie. Why? Just tell the truth and face the consequences. Period. You have that responsibility. Lie not one to another. He says, put it off. Stop it. Knock it off. Tell the truth. Give up your bad temper. Give up the gossip, the criticism, the filthy communication out of your mouth. It's not the whole thing, but he's giving you here characteristics of the old man. And then he says, verse 10, put on the new. Put off put on. Knock it off and start doing what is righteous and right. You can do it. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13 Instead of saying I can't, say I can by the grace of God. All it takes, and I'm going to try to summarize some things here, but all it takes, friends, is you in quietness and confidence going before the Lord And praying about various different situations that you're tempted to get into the flesh in. And let the Holy Spirit speak from within and speak to your heart about how you should respond and act and then yield to that. Do it. Just simply do it. And you'll find that you'll progressively grow and progressively mature as a Christian. You'll increase in love. You'll increase in joy. You'll increase in peace. You'll increase in patience. You'll increase in gentleness and kindness and self-control. You'll increase in humility. You'll increase in all those areas. And that's all he wants. That's all he wants is to be finding us sincerely trying to mature and grow. And and if we're doing that, I believe when he comes and we hear that shout, we're going up. But if we're sitting back and being lazy and indifferent and more concerned about the things that are going on in the world than the things that are going on in our own spiritual life and we're not examining ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith, lazy Christians are going to be left behind to give a second opportunity to overcome through a a variety of trials and tests that will go through the wilderness. That's Revelation 12. I'm not going to get into it this morning, but he says here, Paul just simply says, put off the old man, put on the new. He didn't say he couldn't do it. He said, do it. Put on the new, which is renewed in knowledge, Romans 12, after the image of him that created him. All you have to do is stop and think, what would Jesus do in this situation? What would he do? 
where there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision, uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as elect of God. He just says, start living this way. Be holy. That means righteous. That means do what is right. Holiness and sanct being sanctified and set apart is in the Old Testament. If you do what is right, you're going to be separate and different. You young people are going to be different when you choose to live holy in school. That's, that's the way it is. You, you, you choose to live holy where you work, you're going to be different than most people. He wants our ethics. He wants our language. He wants our attitudes. He wants our choices to be separate from what the world does. If you can't be mature enough to overcome what the world wants you to do, then get out of that barrel. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. If you can't live a godly life in your government school, get out of your government school so you can mature and grow up and learn to say no to some of the things that are, that are going on. It's for your good I'm saying that. You've got to take a stand for what is right. He isn't telling us we have to be perfect. He just tells us we have to be striving to be other than what the world is. He says, put on holiness, bowels of mercy, kindness, humility of mind, meekness, long-suffering. We're going to talk about all these things. Because that's... To me, if we're going to be ready for the Lord, this is what we need to be doing. Forbearing one another. Forgiving one another. If any man has a quarrel against any, as Christ forgaves, so do you. There shouldn't be any animosity, anger, resentment, bitterness in your heart toward anybody. doesn't matter what they do. Above all these things, put on love, which is a bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you are called in one body and be thankful. He right away starts talking about some of that fruit again. In another place in the book of Romans, Paul speaks about how that, he says, the kingdom of God, kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It isn't all these things that people come up with. You know what I mean? I mean, I mean it, it appalls me. I'm, I'm not going to apologize. I'm serious. But it appalls me that August came around and I was in one restaurant and they've got their Christmas trees up already. And, and, and you know, the argument sometimes is, well, okay, so you don't, you don't believe that's the date and I believe that's the date, so I'm okay and you're okay. And I don't want to say to myself, no, wait a minute. Can you, if we were going to have a birthday party, let's say for anybody in this in this building this morning. We wanted to have a birthday party. And so we might say, okay, we're going to get horns and hats and whistles and cake and this, that, and the other. We're going to have a birthday party. If Jesus wanted a birthday party, he had somehow told us, hinted at it. But he didn't, hint, he didn't say anything about it. And you feel like saying, what in the world does Santa Claus have to do with Jesus? What does reindeers with neon noses have to do with Jesus? If you want to you celebrate a winter holiday, 
Fine, it's a national holiday if that's what you want to do. Keep Christ out of it then. He isn't in it. They've put him in it. It isn't his day. I'm, you say, well, how do you know? Well, I, don't, I can't honestly say that I, don't, that I know it's not, but it just seems like would, would God choose on the biggest pagan holiday of the year that was going on at that time, the day to send his son, to be born. I wouldn't want to be born on Halloween, would you? <laughs> Hello. Yeah. I, everybody here knows that, that this is my hobby horse, and I, I don't mean it, I don't mean it because I don't have something to say. I got, I got three sermons in front of me. I got plenty to say. But it really grieves my heart that all he said to us was, worship me in spirit and truth. That's all he wanted. Why can't we do that? It's not true. He, didn't, he, he did not have a sleigh and Peter dressed up with pillows and a red suit and a bunch of reindeer out there on the main one called Rudy. None of that. Can you picture Jesus gathering everybody together and saying, I would like to introduce you to you a, a, new, a new thing that I want you to keep? He did that. The feet washing, the communion of the bread and cup, a new thing you want to do? I want to add to it, guys. Look at this beautiful tree that John brought down from the mountains. We're going to deck it with silver gold. <laughs> Don't get mad at me. I know it's not easy for some of you with relatives that don't believe, but they're still, it just, huh. all he wants us to do. Here's what we need to do to be ready when the Lord returns. We, we need to be found striving to grow and mature in all of the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5 talks about nine of them, but there are many more. He wants us to be overcoming the temptation to be arrogant and proud rather than humble. He wants us to overcome the temptation to be argumentative and, and stubborn-headed instead of meek. He wants us to overcome the temptation to be resentful and bitter instead of forgiving and so forth. He wants us to be loving. He wants us to be peaceful. He wants us to be joyful. I'm going to talk about this next week. You know what? He doesn't want any sour grumps in his kingdom. He doesn't want any sour, grumpy, negative people. And I think of the five wise and the five foolish, five of the foolish that get stuck down here, they're going to be the, they are the, the sourest, most negative, most grumbling and murmuring and complaining of people. You say, you think complaining is going to keep you out of the kingdom? It kept Israel out of the promised land. God doesn't want you to be negative and grumbling and complaining. He says that in everything give thanks. Not for, but in. Because he's sovereign and he's in control. And he wants us to rejoice in that. That was the lesson he taught Job. I'm not telling you what's going on. I'm just telling you I'm in control. Father... I believe I've spoken what you wanted me to say this morning. And I pray that it would help all of us to be examining of our life.
in those areas where we just maybe are not and have not been working at yielding to the Holy Spirit. And so those areas are still far weaker than they should be. Then convict us about that and help us to recognize it and get serious and focused about making improvements in our walk. There's a lot of things you want to talk to the church about. But I pray this morning that just a reminder of your coming and our purpose to build will stir us up to being careful as we go through the week and you begin to do this work in our hearts. Bless the word, Father. Thank you for everything in Jesus' name. Amen.